Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. In the realm of parenting, especially attachment parenting, the focus has been on mothers. In fact, if you go to any attachment parenting group, online or not, you're far more likely to come across a group of moms talking about their beliefs, experiences, struggles, and so forth. But it's not just mothers who experience and parent with an attachment-related set of beliefs. Fathers and partners also experience attachment parenting and can have a profound impact on their child's development and their own relationship with their child. But we know incredibly little about this. Today, I'm thrilled to have Dr. Levita D'Souza join me to discuss her research looking at the experiences of fathers who are attachment parents themselves. How do they experience it? What are their struggles in an unsupportive society? What led them to this way of parenting? These are the kinds of questions she's exploring in this new and much needed line of research. For all the dads out there, and those who are hoping their partners might get on board, this research is for you. I am so pleased to have back with me again after way too long a break, Dr. Levita D'Souza. For those of you who are new to the podcast, you may not know Dr. D'Souza, but she is my regular guest, and she is here with us today in a little little bit of a different format, because I'm actually going to interview her about her research, as opposed to the norm where she actually just discusses these important topics with me and we get to bounce ideas off each other. So be prepared for something a little different. But for those of you who don't know, Dr. D'Souza is both a registered psychologist who works in private practice and a researcher at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Her research focuses on attachment in its various forms and co-sleeping, and she serves as a wealth of information on this podcast when we delve into anything pertaining to attachment, sleep, parenting, you name it, she's got it. So thank you so much for coming back. Thank you for having me back. It's been a very long time. It has. It's been crazy long and it's very disappointing. So we won't let it get this long again before we go on. And now, as I mentioned, today we're doing something a little different. It's more of my normal interview style with people where I talk to them about their research and what they found, which is going to be different for us. Um, I will try to refrain from, you know, just chatting away as we go. But so we are going to focus today on one of your primary research areas, which is that of how fathers experience parenting. And in this case, we're focusing specifically on attachment parenting. Now, before we get into the research at hand and dig into it, can you tell us how you became interested in this particular research topic? Um, We're talking fathers or we're talking parenting because there's two different stories there I might might go down the line (laughs) let's start with parenting generally and then fathers because both stories I'm sure are fascinating oh I don't know I'm pretty much a geek but um parenting in general like I said before it's been my own experience and um you know you have an idea before you become a mom about how you want a parent and you're like the best mom ever and then you become a parent and you're like crap I don't know what I'm doing so when and for me it was worse because I was you know raised in India and I was exposed to a parenting style so different Um, and then I come to um, a non-collectivist culture and get exposed to all these different styles and I'm conflicted in my own parenting identity you know am I going to do what I saw my mom and grandma and all women around me do or am I now going to adopt something that doesn't feel right doesn't feel um doesn't sit with me well um yet is so heavily endorsed 
and apparently evidence-based. So <laughs> then I go looking for, hang on, is there anyone else parenting like me? And in that process, I came across a lovely um, Australian Breastfeeding Association group. Uh, and there was a lady there who said, oh, I think what you're doing is attachment parenting. And I had never heard of it before. Like I knew what attachment was because I was working with an attachment framework with my clients who were pretty much children who were traumatized. And so I'm going, huh, okay, maybe there's a term here. And so when I started to look into it, I'm like, okay, so they're endorsing extended breastfeeding, they're endorsing, um, you know, on-demand breastfeeding, things that I wanted to do, and more importantly, co-sleeping. So that sparked my interest of, who else is an attachment parent here? Because that's not a term I had heard about before, right? So that's the attachment parenting. And then that was my first daughter. And then my second daughter, I had a pretty traumatic birth. And I realized that while everyone was around me, no one was checking on my husband. No one was asking him how you're going. And I'm going, I wonder what happens to dads when this is happening. I wonder what happens to dads when... Um, what happens to them as they're becoming parents? You know, what happens if it's the first child? Now, we have a good social network here. So he was okay. He had a space to talk and um, process and integrate that process. But what happens to fathers who don't have that? You know, in some cases, I've heard where they just have to have their baby and mom's hemorrhaging and um, fathers don't know what they're doing. And for me, it was from, from a researcher perspective. Does this affect the transition to parenthood? Does this affect how they bond with their baby and so that's how I got into fatherhood research going what's it like to become a father um, especially when they are so different in that they're much more wanting to be involved yeah and so here I am attachment parenting and fathers I love it and I do think that our our western culture I, I say ours because you're part of it um, in terms of where you live, but there is an expectation that fathers should just be handling that stuff. Like you think about birth trauma, breastfeeding struggles, all of this, there really isn't a lot of focus on, on how dads experience that. And yet we expect them to be supportive mm -hmm. and they're without really much consideration as to what they need. And I think they in turn, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but seem to have to internalize that as well. To be, you know, a good partner, a good father is to subsume their own struggles to get beyond it, which is, you know, adding a whole other struggle unto itself. Oh, I think it is because, you know, we have a generation of fathers that have been raised with boys don't cry. Um, so when this father is now clearly experiencing a situation where he's not feeling in control. He doesn't know what's happening to his partner. He doesn't know what's ha going to happen to the baby. They've never been a father before and they've been thrust this baby in their hand. And he's going, how do I process this? And um, how do I make sense of this? What am I supposed to do if something happens to my wife? And without that opportunity to debrief or talk, it really does impact how they... Um, form this identity as a father um, while having this little, you know, event that almost disrupted the whole family as they knew it. It's, 
It's so I, I never thought of it that way. So I appreciate this. It's um it's an interesting. I'm gonna have to ask my own husband how he coped with them. <laughs> Second birth was a little traumatic too. So actually the first one was too. So there is a little bit there, but um okay, we're gonna get in to your research. But I first want to cover the ground for people that don't know. I mean, first off, I, I have covered a few previous episodes on fathering that are worth going back if you need a framework on on research and fathering the impact of fathers. But in general, can we talk a little bit about what we do know about how fathers impact development? Because I know, um, you know, I, I come from a psych background. And so much of our information is based on mothers. So much of the research is done on mothers for both practical and other reasons. Um, but I know overall, we know fathers have an impact. We know they have a profound impact. But overall, what are the key themes in terms of how fathers interact with their children and the impacts they have on their development? I think that's a big question. And let's take it a little bit at a time. Okay, so the impact is both direct and indirect, I think. So when we're thinking about indirect impact, it is around the prenatal sort of being involved with the baby even prenatally. So if you're doing antenatal appointments or Lamas classes or, you know, um, that sort of stuff, uh, those sort of um, uh, appointments where dad has to be very present, we know from the research that they do tend to start bonding with their babies, even though they're not biologically gestating their babies. From the mother's research, again, because we don't know how this looks like in fathers, from the mother's research, we know that mom's attachment and the way mom thinks about her baby um, in utero when she's, when she's pregnant can predict her attachment pattern when the baby is born. And there is some research to show that even fathers show a similar trend, that the kind of bond they have with their baby kind of re remains stable. So that's an indirect attachment when you see, if, you know, an ind indirect opportunity for an attachment when you see fathers who can bond with their babies so early. Okay. Um, then there's a direct sort of um, involvement. Okay. So here is a group of fathers who are not weekend fathers, you know, so these are fathers who want to be um, very involved with their babies, very involved with the parenting. Um, and this is possibly coincided with the women going back into the workforce. So when these dads are now being involved, what we know is that they bond with their babies firstly, they get to know their baby's cues. Um, they support mum in how mom wants to parent the babies with the breastfeeding and we know that breastfeeding rates are better with the father support providing mom wants to breastfeed so if mom doesn't want to breastfeed and dad's going i think you really need to it doesn't work like that so we're talking also about a, a tuned couple relationship uh, where they feel like they're in sync which can have positive impact for the relationship and also for the baby and then you know the research on you know father involvement and long-term impacts, including social, better social um, development, less aggression, um, better academic outcomes. Now, having said that, I'm quite aware because there's a voice in my head saying to me, but what about single moms who don't have dads? And what about same gender couples? So you just jumped into <laughs> what I was going to ask you just to clarify on that oh, one. <laughs> yes, no. So 
we're saying fathers because we're talking about the father figure, I think, and I think I'd like to think about the father figure. So even with single moms, you will have a grandfather or you will have a best friend or you will have someone like that who is around or even with same gender, you will have a father figure around who can step in and play that role. So while we're talking here entirely about fathers, it is not it's not to say that these outcomes are somehow um, not going to happen if you if you're a single mom or if you have you know if you're a same gender couple absolutely not um, we know that there's not differences there providing there is sufficient caregivers who will scaffold around the child that kind of reminds me of in the last episode of last season um stacy rosenbaum with the gorillas where the alpha male gorilla provides a ton regardless of whether or not he's biologically related to these young young gorillas they are just he provides kind of that father figure and also in oh and i'm gonna i i forget which um which species it was it might have still been gorillas but i think it wasn't where the mom and kind of a best friend co-parent even though they're not necessarily you know it's it's a male and a female but it's not about their relationship but they co-parent very well mm-hmm. and so i kind of always think about the fathering research in many ways is kind of co-parenting research as mm-hmm. opposed to and and that other person doesn't have to be a biological male it doesn't have to be a biological father it doesn't have to be um well i'm assuming it has to be human but other than that i mean i think yeah. you've kind of got the realm down that it is really about this support which i think really highlights so much of the support for the mom in this realm there because i think there is i know many fathers father figures others who want to be involved directly at a very young age but in many cases that's not always you know the reality that as much as that person may want to have that direct involvement, there is going to be a caregiver who is the primary. Yeah. Um, and that is that baby is going to need that extra time and everything with that primary yeah. caregiver. And so the support that comes through this, this co-parenting relationship is really, and I, I hate say every time I say co-parenting, I think of divorce because it's been kind of <laughs> opted for that but it's really we all co-parent with someone else in a certain way and it doesn't have to be in a divorce situation so perhaps we should call it alloparenting you know where we're all together parenting in this village sort of setting it's a community it's a group and you know the grandparents and aunties and uncles all have this contact with the mom being the center and then as the child grows the the network grows exactly i love it yes okay so we know dads are important. We know they have both, as you put it, this indirect and direct. And I would say almost, I was thinking at the beginning, you meant kind of indirect and direct differently, kind of the indirect through the support of mom going all the way through and then direct, Mm -hmm. both even bonding. I think that bonding is Mm -hmm. still somewhat of a direct prenatally when you're involved in that stuff and then the direct actions after. So there's these two pathways, but there's tons of research on how that involvement benefits children um, in the long run, socially, emotionally, etc. But the line of research that we're looking at today is preliminary research from you in your lab on how fathers experience attachment parenting. So the very specific type of parenting. And 
For those of you that aren't aware of the primary principles of attachment parenting, um, the we're talking about the features that are identified by uh, Dr. Sears and his wife. They include um, birth, that kind of a not natural birth per se, but a aware non-intrusive birth. birth. That's a great word. Thank you. Non-intrusive birth, um, breastfeeding on demand. um, If you are breastfeeding, Uh, high sensitivity to the child, uh, a focus on bonding through touch, sleep, and in particular, co-sleeping. That does not necessarily mean bed sharing, but Mm -hmm. it does mean sharing a sleeping area, Uh, being there for the child, gentleness in one's responses, particularly with respect to discipline, and then balance with respect to one's life and parenting of not becoming subsumed by one. So in practice, I think um, most families really assume that attachment parenting is a kind of mothering. And that's how Mm -hmm. we've always, we've heard of it. If you look at attachment parenting circles, you're looking at mothers in in most cases. And so and, and I just want to be clear. I think there's a reason for that is so much of the emphasis has been on birth and breastfeeding mm-hmm. that that's a very difficult thing to disentangle from a, a birth mother Correct. than from others who might, you know, be involved there. And even if we don't, you know, I know people who have had surrogates and still breastfeed after and whatnot, mm-hmm. very attached, but it still hones into the mother at the end of the day. Um Correct. And so it takes up a lot. So in this framework, though, when we look at it, what does an attachment parent father look like? What are the kinds of things that when we think about those features, what are we thinking of in terms of the involvement and the experience of the father? Right. So like you said, the focus has predominantly been on mom because the principles, when you think about breastfeeding, um, birth, um, you know, even baby wearing, it's predominantly been mum who, you know, it's proximity and it's the focus has been on mum. The question really when we set up the study was if mum's doing it, I'm sure father's doing it. Like, you know, what's her partner doing when she's doing all of this? And so it's like, are there attachment parenting fathers out there? Um, Who are they and what does it look like for them? And I think what we went in thinking was, yeah, surely dads can baby wear because you see there's dads baby wearing, you know, we see dads, um, you know, who who are a lot more involved with the play and that's an opportunity to develop attachment because this is to and fro and mutual delight and, you know, that sort of stuff. What we didn't expect was the endorsement for co-sleeping that came up. Um, what we didn't expect to see was how much they wanted to find their role in a family with breastfeeding and uh, you know with and like this almost dissonance in their mind that we know mom has to breastfeed because it's good for her but um how can we be part of that unit while mom's breastfeeding and i don't think this is relegated to just attachment parents but i think fathers in general struggle with when mom's sort of establishing because they feel kind of left out. Um, and then part of the bonding is how fathers then get back into that family unit going, here, here is my role as a father, and this is what I'm going to do to support mom. But this came through quite strongly in these men's narratives. Um, Can I ask a question on this quickly? Because, and I know yes. we're going to get into details of all the findings. So I realize yep. this is a, a quick gloss over, but yep. it's yep. interesting you say that about the breastfeeding because 
especially again in our Western culture, it's the push to get dad involved by using a bottle and not breastfeeding that somehow those two things, father involvement and breastfeeding seem to be treated as antithetical Mm -hmm. to each other. So it's really interesting to hear that these dads were looking for their role in that as opposed Mm -hmm. to trying to take away from it in a role. That's really fascinating to me and really heartening because I, I want more parents to think that way for those families that want to breastfeed to not feel like, a, you know, you have to give something up for your partner and to not feel like you need to ask your partner to give something up for you. Mm-hmm. And these feelings, um, these sort of I'm finding my role within this unit came through even with sleeping arrangements. And we'll talk about that, how dads and moms have negotiated that as they've gone along. That's amazing. And now I would imagine in this, too, there are some that do make sense for me. So thinking about supporting mom is one way in which I would see it, even though attachment parenting doesn't really focus on support for mom as a core feature, obviously that has to play into how dads do attachment parenting, doesn't it? Well, it does, isn't it? Because otherwise it's going to cause conflict. And so dad, if mom wants to do it a certain way and dad's you know, not on board for whatever reason, then there is going to be conflict on, in the relationship. And you know, if you have great conflict resolution skills, you will work through that, you know, so either you compromise and I don't know what that looks like. But in this sample, the compromise looked like, well, fine, we'll go along with what you want to do, providing I'm, I can research. And so what we found was mums have initiated this. So when we asked dads, how have you come along to do this? From almost all dads, mums have initiated it, probably being online. Um, and then mums have given information to dad, you know, prepared information to dad, who've then gone along and looked at that. But what's happened eventually is as dads have got more educated in that process, something has happened internally for them where their own childhood experiences have come to the forefront. And they've gone, this actually feels quite different to how I was raised. Now, I don't think this is... um, only typical of attachment parents. I think it's typical of all parents that our childhood does come, the way we've been parented is brought up to the forefront. But something happens here where fathers have said it starts to feel like it's instinct. So I'm going to jump ahead. I have some other questions that I'll go back to that we'll we'll get to. But this is actually one of the things I wanted to touch on, which Mm -hmm. was the motivation for it. How did Mm -hmm. parents get there? And that this does sound like they they got there from their partners. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I'm thinking about how I don't know if you know this, how it came about, because I think there's probably some people listening who don't have partners on board who might actually like to get partners on board. (laughs) And, you know, I sometimes always feel that people aren't on board because of exactly, as you said, these things creep up from their childhood. It may feel different. It may feel uncomfortable. It may be triggering in certain Mm -hmm. ways. So Mm -hmm. how did they navigate those situations and how, I mean, of what you know from what you were able to look at, how did they come around to being on board if they weren't there right from the get-go? I think what the fathers have said is prior prior to becoming a father, they had just assumed it was going to be how their parents had raised them, right? And then 
something happens when they become fathers. And I think that process of, you know, that initial process where you hold your baby and this bonding happens, something happens there where they start to think about, oh, okay, here's this baby. I don't know what I'm doing. Like One father said, while I don't agree with what my parents did, I can see how they did the best they did with what they knew, given that I don't know what I'm doing and I'm just going with what feels instinctively right. I think what um, the couples here have done is a lot of communication, a lot of discussion, a lot of why we want to do this, why do you think it's important and having, you know, the resources to sort of back that up. So mums, you know, blogs and um, websites or Facebook groups have sort of prepared the fathers the information. Now, there have been fathers who've gone, I'm not entirely comfortable with this, but, and this is especially in, with the co-sleeping to start with, given the messaging around, um, you're going to kill your baby. Uh, what they've seen, though, eventually going forward is the ease of mum when it comes to breastfeeding. They've seen how much more comfortable mom is when she's more rested in most cases. And I think that's brought them around a little bit. Now, when they have these kind of differences, they see that they're not parenting the way they thought. They're not parenting the way their parents were. And I can imagine this potentially coming up a bit later um, with things like discipline and there's you know, you we all get triggered, right? When we, especially in certain areas, sometimes it's easy, like co-sleeping, you might have your nerves on edge about, you know, oh my God, I'm going to kill my baby. Um, but, you know, if you don't have that, and of course, I, I urge anyone here to listen to um, the last episode with Dr. Helen Ball talking all about SIDS and that research. So that mm -hmm. should hopefully clarify about not killing your baby. Um but I do think that there's going to be these triggers. There's going mm -hmm. to be these moments. And do these fathers handle it differently than we might expect others to do? Yeah. I think to answer that, we think about, you know, when we asked fathers, why? Why did you choose this? And three things came along um, very strongly. One was disconnect, one was disrespect, and then one was the weekend father. Okay, so father's going, well, I had a weekend father. You know, he wasn't involved. Um, he wasn't present. He was a disciplinarian. So mom took the bulk of the parenting. Dad was, you know, on the weekend or just a disciplinarian. I never really had a connection with him. but. I want to raise my child differently. So there was a very conscious element to them saying, I want to consciously be different from my father. And so they were consciously then making choices that they hadn't experienced, right? The second was disconnect. I felt very disconnected from my parenting. And this is not to say these fathers were by any means abused or anything. This was very, this was normal, quote unquote. Um, but, just the family dynamic. And this was not an unusual experience back then, if you think about it, right? These fathers are in their 30s and 40s. It wasn't very unusual to have males as a breadwinner and mom being fully present, but they felt disconnected from their father. They felt disconnected sometimes even from their moms. Um, and so in their mind, that 
was I needed more connection with my baby. I wanted more connection with my child growing up. Um, I was I'm not okay with leaving them to just watch ten videos while you know the adults did what they had to do. Um, and the third was disrespect. And I think this is quite distinct for fathers because it didn't. We also interviewed mums, but this didn't come up in the mums' narratives. Mums came. Mums talked a lot about feeling emotionally invalidated. Dad talked about feeling disrespected, and this was more around um, they didn't value me as a child. My feelings weren't taken into consideration. You know, they would just poke fun of me. Or um, I think it was you know some way alluding to the boys will be boys, and we have to man them up. And so these fathers are now going. I don't want to parent my child like that. I just I, I want to do it differently. And I think the attachment parenting um principles offered them that opportunity to try and you know have a, almost a framework to try and do things differently with their children that makes sense that's yeah so it's really we're talking about some very self-aware mm -hmm. fathers that we have mm -hmm. and so i i mean i think that's kind of a, a key point that not everyone has right not all fathers are not all partners not all are people as self-aware of stuff well this actually brings me though to to a question that I, I would have asked earlier but i think it it segues quite nicely here i want to understand who these fathers are because mm -hmm. you know we talk about research who is this applicable to who are we talking about is this joe schmo down the street is it um what are the resources for these people what are the things so i think one of the most crucial things you mentioned is that they didn't grow up many of them with this kind of parenting they were not repeating what they knew mm -hmm. which is i think really important because mm -hmm. just for sheer ease of falling into what you know it can be a lot easier that way so um if we start about these fathers what are the kind of features of these fathers that would be relevant in terms of how we apply what we learn from them. Okay, so we might need to launch into a discussion here on qualitative research because these were a sample, given it's a preliminary qualitative research, it was a smaller sample size. So we had 11 fathers, but we had very in-depth interviews. So the interviews went for an hour and a bit. Um, and I'm just going to jump in here to clarify, because yes, I know sometimes people get questions and I always want to jump in when it is. I so often hear people dismiss research for small sample sizes, mm -hmm. and you cannot do that when you're talking A, about preliminary research, B, about qualitative research. Mm -hmm. I have done coding on qualitative research. I actually haven't run and that is so intense. It mm -hmm. is insane. And so mm -hmm. I, I want to caution anyone who wants to dismiss a small sample size as being irrelevant. It's not. It's actually the backbone of what leads us to these larger studies, because mm -hmm. we have to understand what we're looking at before we can actually extrapolate the necessary pieces of information to come up with a bigger study Correct. to be able to examine it. So, it, but it's why we want to be clear, as you said, it's preliminary research. It's this beginning. Mm -hmm. It's giving us those seeds to take, to go elsewhere. That is my Correct. little interjection. I apologize. There we go. No, not to, I thank you for, for that. It's taken us over a year to put this together. Right. And so, um, <laughs> um, that's the depth of analysis with because we're not, we're looking at what fathers are saying, how they're saying it, are these across fathers, and what we're reporting today is actually themes across fathers. So these are eleven fathers um, from 
predominantly Australia, New Zealand, um, and then we've got a couple of fathers from the US. So all of these fathers are in quote unquote Western countries. Two or three of the fathers said that they were raised in very AP type environments. So they, which was, and I'm, we didn't ask in detail because this was demographic uh, information. And so they said, well, no, my mom breastfed me and co-slept. Um, and so this came naturally to me, but from the 11 fathers, I think it was only two or three who said that. Predominantly all were at least college educated. Uh, some had postgraduate education. Um, I think these are fathers in their 30s or 40s. Um, and most had two children. Um, and a whole range of um, socioeconomic statuses. So it wasn't like we could say it was just, you know, the higher economic status or lower. It wasn't, it was a range of it. Most fathers were working, some were full-time work, some were part-time work. And interestingly, most identified with being full-time carers, even though they were all working. So that was interesting. That's awesome. I love that because mm -hmm. that's exactly how we want people to identify. So let me ask, the age range of the kids, you mentioned most of them have two. Yeah. What were the age ranges of the children that we're talking about? So with this research, we looked at zero to, zero to five. So from birth to five years of age, because we were very interested in looking at how parents adapt the basic, you know, breastfeeding, baby bearing, um, you know, co-sleeping as the child gets older. And if there was, in fact, a difference between the younger babies and the parents with younger babies and parents with older babies. And so along with this time, we had moms and dads, but we're only talking about that dads today. Okay. And... I have to ask about recruiting because I would imagine that, you know, 11, getting 11, how many did you have to talk to that even fit or how, I mean, <laughs> well, I just think, and I say that because I get a lot of people that ask for research recruitment um, via EP and it's hard because with all the different requirements as to where people need to be, but even then it's still predominantly females mm -hmm. that follows. So when you're thinking about trying to recruit males, that social media platform that's been used so frequently to try and bring people in is probably not as nope. active or available. Correct. And I think we, we, to give you an indication, we put the call out for research, right? We had over 250, um, over two, uh, almost 300 people contact us. Uh, majority of them were women. Uh, and to give you a scale of what recruitment looks like, we did 40 interviews with women, but 11 with fathers. A lot more fathers contacted us, but, um, you know, it, um, I think I think fathers in general with research are harder to um, recruit. I don't know why. Um, we I, had, you know, I can say going back to when I worked at the lab at the University of Toronto, I remember one study where stuff went home and the, the moms came into the lab with the child, but we also sent stuff home to get input from dads. And it was not a big thing to feel like, I, I will admit, we were not asking a lot. And it, the return rate was abysmal. <laughs> Even if the mom would send hers, hers back, mm -hmm. it just, sorry, my partner didn't do it. And it was yeah. like, oh, 
okay like it really would have taken like 20 minutes come on this is no i know so i i think we have to change that stigma there has to be an understanding of how important their views are to the research yeah. and i don't know if maybe yeah. that's a piece that's missing that it just seems oh no this is your realm you fill it out, you do it as opposed to, no, we really need to hear from partners, from father figures. This is what's crucially important as to, to what we're looking at. Yes. And I think men are a lot more forthcoming when it, in, 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 in practice. So when I, you know, when I'm talking to fathers in practice, they're a lot more forthcoming and really want to talk and, you know, want to be heard. And I'm like, but why won't you participate in research? I don't understand. Um, I think, look, partly it's also time commitment because very often sometimes, um, you know, when you're working full time, research is not forefront of your mind. Um, you talking about it should research. be on the forefront of everyone's <laughs> mind. Everyone's not nerds, Tracy. <laughs> shocking i don't know what to say to that. um <laughs> no that's fair and I, I think it's true the time commitment can be a lot um yeah. okay so i want to get to more of the findings here because it yep. was i mean we've talked about the, how they got into it one of the things that i found so interesting in this research and it was probably the thing that just jumped out at me the most is that despite different feeding practices mm -hmm. despite different discipline practices the universal in this group was co-sleeping. Co-sleeping. And that was like, you know, and, and being against sleep training, actually. They both, everyone mm -hmm. endorsed kind of both mm -hmm. kind of together that this co-sleeping mm -hmm. kind of went hand in hand with a refusal to sleep train. And why do you think amongst all of the different components of attachment parenting, you know, I would think like baby wearing, oh, yeah, everyone can strap on their baby and go out and do it. Like, why? was co-sleeping why do you think that seems to be so intricately linked to the attachment parenting paradigm i think this is more a question of you know it's it's is it causal or is it correlational i think i think this is my view um these fathers were actually enjoying co-sleeping, believe it or not. They really were. And if you look at the research around the world, co-sleeping occurs without, I mean, if you look at practices around the world, co-sleeping occurs without attachment parenting, right? Without the label attachment parenting. Yeah. So it's been practiced. It's been negotiated, say, and it's been practiced mo mostly safely. So why co-sleeping over here? I just think these fathers found something that they enjoyed it aligned with their instinct in combination that sleep training felt wrong and that was the message that came very strongly that uh, there's no way i'm letting my child be cry out there's no way i'm leaving this child and letting them feel abandoned there's no way i could you know i could do that now some fathers tried it so i think one father in particular mentioned we did everything short of cry it out so they really tried the you know practices around settling babies separately and it just didn't work and this worked so they did it i you know it's interesting that you bring up other cultures because that was exactly my thought about co-sleeping being so dominant here was that there's tons of cultures around the world that co-sleep mm -hmm. is a norm and we don't look at all those parenting practices and say they align with attachment parenting mm -hmm. and yet in our more western kind of cultures that seems to be one of the things that really 
stands out as being part and parcel of it. And I'm just so curious about, and, and maybe this just comes down to attachment too, but I'd love your thoughts on why in Western culture do we seem to see more of this link between sleep-related behaviors as a form of attachment. And this, let me just finish, and attachment. And it goes back to a topic you and I have talked about previously yeah. about you know, why attachment may not be the thing to look at when we're talking about potential problems with sleep training. And yet that's still this kind of dominant discourse going on in Western cultures where we have somehow intertwined sleep and attachment Mm -hmm. as being almost, you know, we almost believe they're like just wrapped up together, even though that's not what we see cross-culturally. Right. So I think to answer that, we have to disentangle some of the concepts here, okay? Is our sleep and attachment linked? I don't think so. Uh, because attachment, just the attachment, and I'm, not, and I'm not talking attachment parenting here, just the attachment bond is a lot more to do with, um, you know, the mom and the parent and child being responsive to each other, being in this sort of what we call an intersubjective relationship where mom, you know, serves and the baby receives, the baby serves uh, and the mom receives. And it's sort of a back and forth. And this can be through a whole range of practices throughout the day. You know, you can baby wear your baby, but not pay attention. (laughs) Yeah, the proximity has benefits, no doubt. And I think the proximity co-sleeping offers overnight, the, the, you know, the, the, skin to skin right feels instinctively right so it becomes um this thing of if i'm close you know it could be linked to attachment perhaps i think what's not where i think attachment can be questioned here when it comes to sleep is then separating baby when baby is not ready just as you know if a child's wanting to be picked up and you go i'm not going to pick you up because i'm going to spoil you that's a serve and receive, you know, the back and forth of a parent that's going off, right? You're not responding to baby's cues. And I think that's where sleep training has been brought under the sort of realm of it can damage your baby. Now, I know babies who have been sleep trained who actually take it very, take it very well. Okay, these are not babies that have been um, left to cry for hours, right? Uh, we don't know the, we don't know what the attachment relationship is going to be because that's one behavior in the context of so many other behaviors so claiming that it has or has no benefit on attachment really is you you can't say it um on the other hand i think attachment parenting right which is different from an attachment relationship offers you opportunities to be proximal to your baby, to be close to your baby, which I think can facilitate that sort of back and forth, getting to know your baby, getting to know the baby's cues, and thereby possibly cement a stronger relationship. But again, there is no um, link between attachment parenting and a secure attachment. I think uh, parents who try to rigidly follow the practices when without taking their baby's mind into consideration and without being aware of what's going on for them into consideration, 
also risk the you know risk that sort of rupture that we would call where you know you don't want to hold a baby when you're really so angry you're going to shake them you're better off putting them down but you don't want to pick up a baby and make and wear them when they don't want to be worn and when they want to explore because that's part of the attachment as well baby feels safe enough to go out there and explore and so the link with attachment parenting and and co-sleeping is just that it affords you proximity to respond to your baby overnight that's all I love that issue about baby wearing because I've read articles and seen people dismiss these practices because they were attempting to rigidly follow them and then declared they didn't work. So therefore they throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm -hmm. And it really is so crucial, I think, for us to understand that things facilitate things. And that's kind of how I saw it as that co-sleeping facilitating a chance to be responsive, mm -hmm. a chance to bond. And with fathers in particular, who may not, well, who are probably not breastfeeding. Um, although if we're talking about father figures, there may be others who are in yep. terms of allied yep. nursing. Um, but they, that is one of the most surefire ways that they have to build up those opportunities. Mm -hmm. So in that way, I was wondering if that might be more of why it was so universal compared to other yeah. things, because that was their way to experience bonding, sleep deprivation, everything. Mm -hmm. It was, they got to get, and I, I, I'm joking with sleep deprivation because no. I just got way more sleep by co-sleeping. So <laughs> it is, but in terms of how that. we think about it, uh, that is what I think is part of it is those kind of chances to experience, yeah. especially early on. Yes. Now there was a difference in the, in fathers' perspectives here, okay? So with very early on babies, I think sometimes when there's a lack of space, some fathers have been okay with mum co-sleeping and them sleeping in the spare room. Now, traditionally across cultures, when there is a lack of space, the baby gets into the parental bed, the father then moves off to another bed to facilitate that sort of breastfeeding and, you know, the mum and child in that very early days. Um, which is, if you think from a Sid's perspective, if you have a father, you know, and, and I don't mean Sid's, I mean, you know, um, safe sleeping when you, if you have a baby in the same bed and a parent who is very tired or overtired and, you know, probably not going to be as responsive to the baby's wake cues in some ways, you want to be careful about that. Um, but these fathers is a different sleep surface though. Okay, so, but they, and so some fathers though were still in the same room because they woke up to help mum if they needed, if mom needed something. Or um, it was very cute. <laughs> or if mom wanted, you know, if mom needed to sleep in and baby woke up but didn't really need a feed, dad would then pick up baby and rock baby back to sleep. So I guess, yeah, that's true. So it doesn't necessarily mean they endorsed co-sleeping, but it wasn't necessarily themselves co-sleeping. With the younger babies. With the younger. With the older babies, there was okay. a bit more co-sleeping. So let's talk about this shift because you did go all the way from zero to five in part mm -hmm. to try and understand how these beliefs shifted with age. Mm -hmm. So with co-sleeping in particular, how did this shift across child from zero to five? Did they hit, did, did these fathers hit the stage where it's like, okay, you're two, get out. This is, we're done. Or was it, a bit more nuanced and especially because you said almost all of them had two kids which mm -hmm. raises 
the other issue as to how sleep looks with a second child. In some cases, the father said, well, the first child was my responsibility and the, the, the second child was my responsibility. Yeah, the first baby. So the firstborn was their responsibility. And the second one, who's the baby, was went to the mother who would then breastfeed and uh, pay attention. So the father was then responsible for the needs as such, sleep and all, for the, the older child. When it was just one child and they became two, there was a sense of you two get out. But it wasn't get out to another room. It was, yes, you can go out to another room if you want to, but come back in when you need. So there was still an element of co-sleeping happening where the baby would start off in a child, would start off in a different bed, um, sometimes a different, uh, like a bed at the, at the corner of like a cot at the, in the same room, but a different bed. And then in the middle of the night, if the baby child woke up, they would come into the parental bed. So. Okay. There was an element of co-sleeping even with the older children. Okay. So it wasn't, you know, I mean, they may have yes done a transition, but it yes. was not a cold, hard, okay, I've done my time. We're finished with this. No. It was the, you're welcome, whatever you need to, to come back in, which is really lovely to hear because that's really nice. Now, what about discipline? I have to ask about discipline because that is a feature, this kind of gentle discipline we do, as you mentioned earlier, and as the fathers brought up themselves, sometimes have this idea of fathers as the disciplinarian in the mm -hmm. family. How does this gentle discipline fit for them in this framework? And especially at these very young ages that can be very trying. And I'm thinking probably more two, three, four, mm -hmm. five, mm -hmm. where there's tantrums there's there's acting out there's a bit of a independent streak coming in that as much as we want our kids to be independent suddenly they are and we want them to just go back to listening to us and all of that stuff as it crops up how how did they view that from an attachment parenting framework i think for these fathers one of the themes that came up is my child is my priority which is it is child-led it is you know, the child is respected, the child's feelings are therefore respect, respected. And, you know, um, if they cry, it's because they're expre expressing a need. And my job as a parent then is to let them express their need and offer a hug. Now, there was stigma around these practices, and we'll talk about stigma later. But um, for most of them, it, it was, well, they're just expressing. And so I'll let them express and then offer a hug when they need it. And they found, and it was quite heartwarming to watch the father smile as they say, you won't believe how self-assured my child is. You won't believe how confident my child is. And it was just the, the, the pride in their face as they were talking about how the gentle discipline is letting the child know they're respected and being completely cognizant that their own experience wasn't like that. Like one father even talked about how he was left in the room for hours to cry um, as a means of punishment and, you know, couldn't imagine doing that to their own child. So from the discipline perspective, yeah, it sounds like they had some good positive feedback early on from it that allowed mm -hmm. them 
to go forward with it. And so did any of them report having struggles with it without that positive feedback that struggled to maintain a gentle demeanor? Not explicitly, I don't think. Um, you know, I think the struggle would have been one that's internal where I don't know what to do. Uh, this is not, our, not how I was raised. Um, you know, I'm worried that I'm doing the wrong thing here. Um, so that's more of an internal struggle. But what the child would have seen is, is a father who's not yelling, not screaming, you know, trying really hard within themselves to hold it in while being present in whatever way, whatever capacity possible to help regulate this child. It's lovely. I love that. And and it is what we hope for. And I, I love that you mentioned that, yes, the internal struggle, because I think we all have it. Fathers, mothers, all uh -huh. of us have those moments uh -huh. where we're looking at it going, I have no mm -hmm. idea what's happening right here. And I'm not entirely sure what to do, but I can sit here and give you a hug. And, and that's, that's all we need to do. Yeah. And that's all I can do. And sometimes, you know, often, you know, in talking to mom, saying the thoughts in my head or the instincts or the impulses that are coming in my head, which, have, which would have been from how they were raised as children, are actually quite strong. And it takes a lot of, you know, it takes a lot of work internally to be able to regulate that, uh, to be able to go, no, I'm, my child's not spoiled. My child's not doing this deliberately. My child's not um, just pressing my buttons, even though they are, and it feels like that, right? But it's your buttons. It's it's your, um, and look, no one's perfect. Sometimes you lose it. And I think when we say I lost it, it's you're losing sight of um, the child's needs versus your needs. And I think and your own experiences because some healing needs that needs to be done there. Um, and it's not the end of the world if that happens again. So I don't want to make parents feel like if they lose it, it's a bad thing. I think it's going back and repairing because we are not raising blank slates and we are not blank slates. So our own experiences and hurt and vulnerabilities do get um, come up to the surface when we are in interaction with our children. Absolutely. And I, would add to that that sometimes when we can apologize and repair after it is repairing to those triggers that we also had for us not just for our child i mean it internally it's almost like you get to apologize to the little you that didn't have it that is kind of raising that flag and waving it and causing the trigger in the first place is you you get to say, no, you know what, that wasn't right. And when we can acknowledge mm -hmm. that it wasn't right, we can start to feel better about what we experienced as Correct. well. Correct. It's, it's, and that's the healing I was talking about. Yeah, exactly. And so, as you said, we've got to get, because I'm looking at the time here too, but we have to talk about judgment, stigma, yes. because this is such a huge element when it comes to attachment parenting, co-sleeping, mm -hmm. uh, breastfeeding beyond infancy, all these mm -hmm. things that are often associated with attachment parenting. And as mm -hmm. his father seems to have associated them with attachment parenting as well. Correct. Uh, we know quite well that um, as women who have practiced that, there is stigma and judgment and attempted shaming and all of it that can go into the mix, especially in mm -hmm. social media, which is just a horrific place to try and do, mm -hmm. in a wonderful place when you get the support. It's got the, the two sides. It can be your saving grace or your ruin, but yeah. it's there and it, it's very prominent. 
did the fathers experience this at all? Oh, absolutely. All fathers said that they had in some shape or form. Um, what was the shape or form? Who were Because were I'm not imagining them online in little social groups being told they're murdering their children. So where were they getting the shame from? Professionals, in some cases. Uh, some fathers were explicit and really, you know, angry about some of the things professionals had told them. And this, these were fathers who were looking for safe co-sleeping advice and were dismissed. Um, you know, this is exactly what Helen and I were talking about, is the lack of advice out there and the mm -hmm. professionals providing these opinions. It's just so wrong. It is so wrong. But okay. Sorry. So they have professionals who are shaming them for seeking evidence-based information okay here is the interesting bit fathers didn't refer to, refer to it as shame they just had anger going and they went i'm not listening to that person they don't know what they're talking about the mothers on the other hand had experienced that as shame so That's fascinating so why do you think that is i want to hear your take on that because i have ideas but i want to hear your take <laughs> oh why i look i think the motherhood role you know, the, I think the, the the way fathers make a transition to fatherhood and the way mothers make a transition to fatherhood sometimes draws on quite different psychological processes. I think the pressures mum feels, it's not just as in the what kind of mother I'm going to be, but how am I going to be perceived within my tribe or within my community? And who is my social network here? So when you are in a community or you are in a tribe or you are in a social network, that's parenting differently to you it can be it can feel quite ostracizing that I'm, I'm outside of my community and that's just i think i think that's what's happening whereas fathers traditionally don't particularly care about that they you know they because they've almost got that distance to go well that doesn't make sense um whereas i don't think mothers have that distance and plus i think their own internal processes if i'm not a good enough mother which came through the narratives of the attachment parenting mothers but not so much as with the fathers yeah i would agree with you i think for some cases because I, I mean I've, I've talked about that as well this idea mm -hmm. of you know we have a historical need to mm -hmm. bond amongst a group for survival so i mean the idea that we would go against that group but i also wonder how much comes from that notion of scientific motherhood that idea that you know you are the most important and yet you know nothing and yeah i i feel like there's almost this misogynist view of women that comes through in this and you almost can't help but feel feel like this is not someone offering an opinion which the fathers may take it as this is a professional offering an opinion it is someone telling you how to do what ostensibly is the mm -hmm. most important thing you're doing mm -hmm. and you're countering it. And so mm -hmm. even the perception and how the message is delivered or received is also likely has roots in that kind of, I, I'm not sure I'm being clear enough here, but I, I, I just go down to in our culture, the level of, of misogyny and medicine and everything that still comes out mm -hmm. 
I feel like it has to play a role in this, that women are perceiving it as an internal failure as opposed to the men, in this case, men perceiving it as a difference of opinion that they can be pissed off about. Correct. And I I wonder how much gender plays a role here as well. And I think that's where, you know, how I'm transitioning, what my, if my whole identity as my mother, as a mother is brought into question because I don't know what I'm doing with my child or I am, I should know it all. And if I'm not doing the way, I'm not doing it in a way that society as a whole endorses, then I'm doing it wrong. And that by that, I'm failing my child. Yeah, um, I see that. And that's the shame. But it's interesting that the fathers don't experience that sense of failure from it, that it's not failing their child. And I don't know if that's because we don't have that same idea of good fatherhood that is so pervasive. I don't know. Do we? Did they report ever feeling like there was some idealized father? figure view that they were to live up to no they said i want to be a good father and what the good father was was what their father was not in some ways um right okay interestingly and and this is not again this because this is preliminary research we have to look into it further a couple of fathers said i want to be a father like my mother was to me so they're drawing their model from their mother um which was interesting. interesting very interesting so what do you take from that about uh, did they clarify what elements from their mother that they wanted to take was it the way she made them feel was it the being there being was there. it it was being there, eh? All of that. So being there, these fathers also talked about um, the co-sleeping and putting the child's needs first. So some of the practices about, you know, I think it's the parental presence. Um, but there would have also been an absence of some of the other pushing away type, you know, that's very rigid disciplinary uh, punitive practices. Um, so, yes, you have an absent father, but not a punitive mother or father, where I think I don't want to be like my dad because I want to be more present, but then my mom was more sensitive and I'd like to be like her. Okay. I love that. That's actually really interesting that you can see them pulling from the different sides mm-hmm. as opposed to mm-hmm. having kind of that idea that they have to look at one or go completely away from it mm-hmm. if they didn't like it. Now, I know in this you mentioned here and I, and I saw in the paper that some fathers took time off work to stay home with their kids in this. And that is an area of judgment I am curious about, because that is one that feels like in our Western culture, they could be judged more for and perhaps feel the judgment a bit more implicitly as not, I guess, living up to their role as provider, so to speak. Mm -hmm. That came through a little bit where they sort of had to reconcile this idea of what a man should be and my provider role which would have been their father role so how they saw their fathers to be a provider and then there was this other role which is I want to be present with my child and um, 
often there was a conflict there and they had to negotiate what that felt like in, in the context of people saying, well, if you're going to stay home there, you're going to spoil your child and, you know, all of those other things um, that came along with it. But most of these fathers continue to stay in that place, especially when the child was still younger. So they were still being present um, for their baby, but had this sort of turmoil, you know, turmoil of, am I being a good provider? Am I not doing this? Now, this interview was conducted at the beginning of the pandemic. And so some fathers were going, oh, thank you. At least now we have reason to be home. So some of that came in a horrible way to say it, but you know, they were going, um, well, at least now it's justified. We can be home with yeah. our children. And one father in particular said, when we asked, what, what would you like to, what advice would you like to give other fathers? And he said, be home if you can. Take time off work if you can. Just be present. I love that. And and I know the difference my husband was able to with my second. And mm. it's a huge difference to have difference. him home. And especially with two, trying to navigate, mm -hmm. you know, that transition was, it was mm -hmm. immensely helpful. So with that, I, I'm wondering just, and I realize I'm, I'm hypothesizing, I'm pondering, I'm thinking there's no answer here, but because so many of these men had reported having that kind of, I wish my father was more around. Do you think that idea of being able to overcome that judgment about provider, et cetera, would be transmitted to those who didn't have that view of their father? So how much was that able to kind of put a big old crack in the idea of this is the kind of father, like provider I'm supposed to be mm -hmm. by having that awareness of, hey, wait, but I didn't like that as a kid, do you think, were there others who didn't have that and still felt like they were comfortable being at home? Do you think others who didn't feel that way about their fathers would be able to cope with that kind of judgment, et cetera, in the same way? I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's, it's hard to say because, um, what we know is most of them didn't have their fathers around. Okay. And when they did, it wasn't great for most like it was you know some of the stigma like we talked about came from the fathers themselves so the father's fathers where you know you're going to spoil your child you're going to so i think there was something about just not not just being absent but the presence of them also not being great because and that continued to sort of flow on with the grandchildren so the fathers had to then step in and go you can't talk to you can't say that to the grandchild you can't treat them like that you can't you know so whether or not um it would be different for fathers who had that sort of i don't know it's interesting i i always wonder about the i know it's such a big yeah. question you can't possibly you know just assume what everyone's going to do but it does raise the question as to what mm -hmm. do people do when they don't have or when they don't have certain experiences or rather how much those experiences and our the way we interpret and experience those moments affect how we're able to go into something like parenting. So, mm -hmm. I mean, with this, this is thank you so much for this. This has been so enlightening, and I love this research. I love that you are doing this. And so, my question quickly before you know we close: What are the future plans for this research? We've talked about how it's preliminary. Yeah, we've talked about you know the kind of methodology of this qualitative often helping us get to the larger side of things so what do you foresee as the next step in looking at this um we've collected some data but what we're going to be setting up 
soon is looking at how reflective function. So that's the father and mother's ability to reflect on their own and the baby's state of mind um, might look like in parents who identify as attachment parenting, as attachment parents versus those who don't, because I suspect you know, there's a self-awareness element. It doesn't matter what you identify with. You're still going to be able to reflect on your child and your state of mind, which will help in the attachment process. So that's one area I'm trying to explore a little bit. But others as fathers in sleep and co-sleeping and how they navigate um, co-sleeping arrangements with their partners. Um, there's a few projects on the go, actually. And then there's fathers who are, um, who've had, experienced uh, restrictions with lockdowns and whether or not they feel like that's impacted you know either the birthing experience or the bonding post birth and so that's an ongoing project that's happening right now and so um yeah we, we're looking to recruit so please come and talk to us well i was gonna ask is what are the when you say you know you are focusing on a fathers that identify as as attachment parents but you are you doing controls now for those that don't identify to make yep. comparisons in some of these yep. yes okay yeah so yep. in terms of that for those of you that are interested if you have a father in your life that would like to fill out research what's the age range is it still zero to five? Oh, i will talk to anyone at the moment <laughs> so if there is a father in your life your partner your friend your father figure whatever um we will have all the information in the show notes take a look yeah. please encourage the fathers in your life to take part in research because kind of you know what Livia said earlier and what we talked about is we are only as aware we only have the knowledge that we can get because of the involvement of others and mm -hmm. We need these father figures to be involved in the research because it's good for them too. It's good for us to understand what they need. It's good for us to understand how they feel, how they experience these things. It's without that, we can't do the best for families, whatever that family looks like. That is what is absolutely necessary. So please take part. Please take a look. You can also just reach out and ask her about it more if you're not sure if it's yes. the study for you. I am very, very open to receiving um, emails, contacts, telling me about your experiences, because my research is predominantly driven by what people say to me, especially in my practice, what I encounter, you know. So if I hear a story, if I hear themes coming up from what people are saying to me, very often we find a way to create a project to try and tap into those sort of experiences. So please feel free to reach out to me. I know that that is, isn't that all our research is based on? I know I when know. I was a student, all my studies, I could go back to trace exactly how we looked how? at each and every one of them. Yeah. And, and it's all those personal things that come into play here. So again, why qualitative research often is the impetus or the seed for yeah. a lot of larger scale studies that then take place. Yeah. Uh, Levita, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for agreeing to be more formally interviewed than our oh. normal discussions. We'll go back to our regularly scheduled programming next time we talk. Yes, please. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure as usual. It is so lovely. So once again, please check out Levita's website um, for her lab, all the research that's there. Check out our previous episodes if you haven't already, because we've covered quite a bit. If you're interested in co-sleeping, as I mentioned, the attachment one um, with sleep training, we talk about a lot and uh, it is always 
in my opinion, interesting. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that hearing about the experiences of fathers in this realm has been helpful for some and to let those dads and partners out there who may feel alone know they're not. Please join me in two weeks, yes, two, we're off next week, as we dive into the idea of how language may inform how we think about our children's sleep, specifically the concept of uspavani. Don't know it? Don't worry. Joining me is Czech sleep expert and graduate student of Dr. Helen Ball, Mrs. Lenka Tinkova, to discuss this concept and what it means for parents and our broader understanding of children's sleep. In the meantime, please stay safe and happy parenting.